This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, folks, and thanks for making AOA a part of your day on this Tuesday, January 18th. We've got a big show coming. We're going to be talking with Naomi Bloom of Total Farm Marketing here in just a minute, taking a look at the market action as the trade resumes after Martin Luther King Day. Next, we're going to talk to Glenn Birnbaum. Glenn is a tax accountant in Illinois. Tax season is upon us. Better get ready to write some checks. Glenn will fill us in on what we need to know before you sit down with your tax preparer. And then in segment three, we're going to talk to John Holzman. John's a geopolitical strategist who's worked with the Heritage Department, and he's going to bring us up to speed on on what's happening between Russia and the Ukraine. So stick around. That'll be in segment three. And finally, we're going to wrap the show today talking to John Newton. He's the chief economist for the Senate Ag Committee, the GOP side of the Ag Committee. He'll fill us in on what they're looking at in Washington, D.C. But to start, let's look at these markets. Naomi Bloom, Total Farm Marketing, is joining us today. And Naomi, soybeans are starting off a little weak to start the week. Yes, we have soybean prices down 17 cents right now. Today, the March contract trading at 1353, down 16 and three quarters. This is what happens when you come back from a three-day weekend and there's some more rain or rain potential in South America. Last week on the USDA report, you know, overall we still have tight-ending stocks, and the USDA did acknowledge that the situation in South America isn't perfect by lowering production, but the news wasn't friendly enough to get soybean prices through $14 last week. So a pullback is happening, and it actually is kind of normal for the last two weeks of January to see soybean prices fall lower. Uh, but today's move definitely pretty dramatic um, as far as prices go, especially when we've got oats trading higher, wheat trading higher, and crude oil up over a buck. Yeah, and actually, wheat was my next question for you, Naomi. That's that's a market that hasn't had much of a story. It's been flopping around down here for a while. Today, it's really moving. What changed in the wheat market? Well, a couple of things. There's, seasonally, there's usually a two-week buy at the end of January where wheat prices have a tendency to recover. And that market had been really oversold from the big correction that it had um, in the last uh, couple weeks. But of course, you know, little rumblings of imperfect things around the world as far as wheat goes and wheat demand in the big picture remains strong. So a little bit of a technical recovery, a little bit of a seasonal buy here at the moment. Um, and then fundamentally, still, when you look at the big picture, we still have tight ending stocks for nine grain and oilseed commodities. So we're going to see a lot of volatility over the next few months. Yeah, I think that trend is slated to continue. Naomi, you mentioned earlier that you tend to see beans sell off here at the final of two weeks of January. For folks waiting for a recovery, do you see $14 coming back and when? You know, I am still quite long-term friendly to the soybean market between now and getting these acres planted. So on this pullback, I would be looking to enter in on the long side. And do, can the March contract get to back to 14 quite possibly, or maybe the March time will have elapsed and May becomes the contract month where it can do it. So, you know, we still have tighter ending stocks here in the United States at 350 million bushels. And with that South American crop, you know, they had a little bit of rain, but overall it is still parched soil conditions down there. And then in portions of Brazil where they've had too much rain, starting to hear that the pods have been opening up. So it is it's not necessarily a perfect crop and we need to make sure now that bean acres do get planted. You know, but first the conversation was, well, we'll have more bean acres because the input costs for corn are so high. But now we have a situation where, hey, globally, we might actually need the United States to have those bigger soybean acres. And there's going to be a fight for acreage in the South when you think of how high cotton prices have gotten. And they had a bullish USDA report last week, and cotton prices just continue overall to push higher, having a little bit of a correction today, but a fight for acres is still going to be happening throughout the United States, and, and we won't have a known idea on that, you know, quite frankly, until we head into later spring. Naomi, over the past two weeks, there's been reports that China is getting a little skittish about the bean situation down in Brazil, and they've been moving more purchases up to the United States. Do you expect that to continue here in the short term until we figure out what's going on down in Brazil? 
Uh, good question. I, I'm not sure. And here's why I'm saying not sure. It has more to do with what's going to be happening in China during the month of February with their New Year holiday beginning. So usually they don't do a lot of purchasing during that time. And then also we have the Olympics going on. So I'm not sure where China's focus and attention is going to be. I'm sure they're going to absolutely be watching that Brazil crop because they rely on Brazil for the bulk of their imports and, of course, the United States second. So if, if the weather isn't perfect in Brazil, then, yeah, maybe they do want to start come back to us to do some more buying. But remember, the other portion about South America is the Argentina picture. And Argentina is where the crop is really, really not doing well at all. Argentina, the world's largest exporter of soybean meal and soybean oil. And when they have problems with production, then they shut down what they're going to be exporting of soybean meal and oil. And then that's where the United States usually becomes the beneficiary, where then our exports of soybean oil and soybean meal improve. So maybe we're going to see um, demand increase for the meal oil and soybeans itself because of all of the things that are happening with South America. So a lot of things to be digesting in the short term. So that's where I'm thinking if the beans have this pullback, it's a good buy opportunity. We might go back up to $14. But until we know for sure what is the size of that crop in South America, we're not going to have a reason to go above $14. But at the same time, soybean prices aren't going to have a reason to go below 13 either. So a dollar is a big trading range for soybeans. But I think probably between now until the February USDA report, that's what we're going to be looking at, some sideways trading after we get the sell-off. Sideways trading with a $1 range. Naomi, looking over at the corn market, I pulled up the ethanol production reports for the past several weeks, and it is a pretty clear downtrend in production of ethanol. Do you think that's going to reverse as this Omicron fades into the background? I do. I think that the ethanol numbers are going to actually, um, in the big picture, stay strong and larger. And in November, export data came out for ethanol in terms of what we exported. So November, ethanol exports came out at 149 million gallons. That was up from 106 last year and 104 from the month of October. And that was actually the largest month for ethanol exports since January of 21. And then looking at even our DDG exports, they were at 1 million metric tons, and that was up from 915,000 the year prior. And that was the biggest November total for DDG exports since 2013. So I'm kind of wondering, like today China came in, or I should say unknown, came in and bought sorghum. And China doesn't like to come in and directly buy you know, corn, but they do like to buy the sorghum. I think we're going to see them buying DDGs. And I think that overall the demand for ethanol is going to stay strong, especially with crude oil over $80 and potentially heading towards $100 a barrel, the demand for ethanol is going to be there. That is good to hear. Naomi, $6 corn March and May contracts, a possibility in the short term? Um, definitely. I think that we're going to see, same with corn and soybeans, they usually have a pullback the last week to two weeks of January, but then corn comes rip-roaring right back into the month of February. And yeah, $6 is a very feasible number and a deserved number. It's a good value for corn. All right, we'll keep an eye on it. Naomi Bloom of Total Farm Marketing, thanks for talking to us today. Thank you. And folks, stick around. Glenn Birnbaum, tax accountant, will join me after the break to talk about what's ahead this tax season. Keep listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we examine how the modern cooperative system solves today's biggest challenges. We'll be talking to CHS experts and farmers and ranchers just like you. And we'll learn how cooperatives apply innovation and technology to help co-op owners get more value every day. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Progressive Farmer knows you need content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we've created our weekly podcast, Field Posts, to bring you convenient and easy-to-listen-to interviews on key topics and trends. Join me, Sarah Mock, as I interview some of agriculture's best farmers. You'll have a front-row seat to learn what's happening in agriculture today. You can view our library of podcasts and upcoming topics by going to dtnpf.com backslash field posts. 
When you choose the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, you're choosing exceptional weed control. It controls more weeds than any other soybean system and offers up to 14 days of soil activity on certain small-seeded broadleaf weeds. Plus, you get triple tolerance to dicamba, glyphosate, and glufosinate when used with Extend Flex soybeans. The Roundup Ready Extend crop system, the system of choice. Claims are based on approved EPA herbicide labels as of January 2021. Pair with a strong weed management program. Always follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and all other stewardship practices. They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of bear plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We win. We, 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 we are are the the Foundation Foundation Fighting Fighting Blindness. Blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. You know, we just had that market discussion with Naomi Bloom talking about some of the prices ahead this year. We have $14 beans in the card, $6 corn, cotton's been going crazy. This last year, we saw the American farmer do fairly well, and the income stream was diverse in 2021 between child tax credit payments and COVID money, and of course, grain and livestock sales. Farmers have a lot to put together as they prepare to meet their accountant this tax season. To help us think that through a little bit, Glenn Birnbaum, partner at Sickich LLP, tax accountant uh, extraordinaire. Glenn, tell us, are there any deadlines coming up that farmers need to know about as it relates to tax season? Well, yeah, there definitely is, Mike, and thanks for having me on. You know, one deadline is actually today, you know, Tuesday, January 18th. Uh, That is the deadline for making your fourth quarter tax estimate. Uh, Now, for farmers who qualify based on a gross receipts rule, most farmers can qualify for this. They actually don't have to make um, any quarterly estimates. They don't have to make the first quarter, the second quarter, or the third quarter. They just make one fourth quarter estimate. And that is due today. So that's that's the most urgent deadline. And if you're a few days late, it's not the end of the world. But but the deadline is today for that fourth quarter estimate. All right, time to get that started, Glenn. The tax season is almost upon us. This last year has been crazy. We saw lots of proposed tax changes thrown out when that uh, Build Back Better bill was rolling through Congress. As we get ready to start this season, has anything big changed? Were there any major changes to the tax law in 2021 that uh, folks should know about? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think the short answer is really there, there really hasn't been much, and um, it's fairly fairly status quo. I mean, you touched on you know one thing is that what's called the advanced child tax credit. And so that is something that's new. It was passed in December of 2020. It takes the child tax credit from 2000 up to $3,000 per child, uh, potentially up to 3600 per child if they're under the age of six. So that's, that's kind of the biggest thing that's out there now. Um, because it's considered an advanced child tax credit, people are actually getting the payments starting July. So you've already possibly received half of that uh, child tax payment already. So it could impact you know, your refund um, when you file your taxes. 
And so this is the child tax credit. I've, I've seen a lot of folks from uh, posts from people with kids. It's the, the 300 bucks per kid that some people have been getting direct deposited into their accounts. That's the advanced child tax credit, right? Yeah, so it's half. So it could be up to $3,600 if you, you, know, if you have a child under six. So you'd get 1800 bucks. And so you take 1800 bucks divided by six, you know, that's how you get that 300 bucks a month for six months. Um, so gotcha. yeah, so, but the, some, sometimes you didn't get paid, paid right away. You know, you, you could get your income. It starts to phase out once your income goes over about 150,000 for married. So it's, it's going to be something that gets reconciled on the tax return. You're going to get a letter from the IRS. That's going to tell you it's letter 6419. It's going to say how much the IRS said they paid you. It's actually going to get, you're going to get two letters. If you're married, husband and wife get a separate letter with, with half the amount on there. So it's going to be, a little tricky to kind of reconcile uh, what, what you think you paid and what you actually got paid. Glenn, the past two years, we've seen a lot of payments from Washington, D.C. related to coronavirus, related to, well, the trade war. I mean, we saw some MFP payments this past year. I'm sure a lot of growers have had experience dealing with these payments on their income taxes after 2020. But for folks that maybe caught them this year, what do you need to have in mind with regard to those payments when you're going in to see your, your tax expert? Yeah, it just really depends on what it is. You know, the, if it's, you know, the Paycheck Protection Program, you know, the PPP Round 2, you know, that's, that's still tax-free. Um, that, no real changes there. But, you know, if you possibly went after the employee retention credit, um, didn't have a ton of farmers eligible for that, but that is taxable income. Um, so you just have to make sure you know, you know, what type of payment it was. Um, but yeah, the employee retention credit is something that's out there that, that is, you know, a great benefit, but it's different from PPP in that it's treated as taxable income. So just, just be aware of that. Okay, a few different uh, distinctions in there. Glenn, there was a, it's, it sounds like a small change, but if folks are on the road quite a bit, it could be a big one. And this was meal expenses. I understand there were some changes to how you can deduct meals. Yeah, so this is for 2021 and 2022 that meals typically have always been kind of 50% deductible, you know, if you're taking a customer out or a vendor or something like that, you know, with a business purpose. But now for 21 and 22, it's going to be 100% deductible um, if, it's, if it's considered a restaurant. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's a nice little benefit. It was passed, um, you know, to try to help out the restaurants, I believe. So just something to keep in mind if you, if you have your formulas, your spreadsheets already set up, you know, Hey, you got to change that because it's going to be 100 percent deductible instead of 50. All right. Now, Glenn, the past few years, when we've had a conversation in January heading into tax time, uh, you've had some frustration because we haven't had all the rules written as, as folks are heading yeah. in to meet their, their tax preparer. 2022, is this different? Do we actually have the rules you're going to need to follow to get taxes prepared in time this year? Yeah, I, I think in general that we do have the rules. The IRS said that they're going to be opening up, you know, the the filing season basically on Monday, you know, next Monday, January 24th. Um, so unless there's some sort of retroactive law change that get passed in Congress, which, you know, maybe you can tell me what you think on that, but it, it should be hopefully fairly straightforward. The one thing is, though, is that the IRS is behind in, in the number of returns, and I can talk a little bit more specifically about that, but they're so far behind yeah, they're open for business, but they're still catching up on last year's taxes. Oh, wow. So, yeah, let's get into a little more detail yeah. on that. Glenn, what's that going to mean when all these new tax returns start piling in? So, you know, the, the, this taxpayer advocate report came out, um, I think it was just last week, and they said at the end of December, roughly, or maybe middle of the end of December, there was still 6.2 million unprocessed 1040s, unprocessed personal tax returns. There was nearly 3 million uh, unprocessed Form 941s, which are the payroll tax forms that that employee retention credit that I talked about, a lot of that comes through there. Um, over 2 million 1040Xs, which are amended tax returns, you know, for fixing something. And here's the big one, uh, Mike, uh, 4.75 million of unanswered taxpayer correspondence, pieces of mail, basically, that have been unanswered. So that's kind Interesting. Of so those are just floating out there and the IRS can't move forward until they get answers. Yeah, you know, they're just they just been overwhelmed, right? Like they're, you know, short staffed and they've just had so many more things they have to deal with with the economic impact payments last year. And so there's nearly five million uh, pieces of mail that they still have to address. 
Oh, wow. So, Glenn, know, you know, I want to ask, talk to you. That's crazy. And, you know, we've heard the Biden administration say they want to extend, uh, you know, expand funding for the IRS to hire more agents. And a lot of folks I talked to in the countryside sounds like that's going to be a, a lot more people maybe getting audited. But it sounds as though they desperately need to do some hiring there at the IRS. Yeah, and they've been trying, but, you know, it's like any, any industry right now, you know, it's, it's just so hard to find good qualified people, right? So, and these, you know, these tax laws are more complex. It's not automatic kind of stuff. So if, if it takes a person, a set of eyes to look at it and, and you know, evaluate the issue, it just it just takes time. and They've just been inundated uh, with mail. So, yep. With with the backlog in claims, both from 2020 and now 2021, Glenn, do you expect to see some delays in getting refunds out to folks this year? I certainly, yeah, I think it is possible. Um, again, because that it, you know, the big, one of the biggest things is that advanced child tax credit. Because if if you know numbers don't kind of match up um, with what you know gets reported on the tax return versus what the IRS has, you know, that's again going to require a set of eyes to figure out you know who's correct. So it, it does create some complexity because we've never had that auto that that hey I'll send you money you know ahead of time that's really never been in in the in the law so that that's going to be something that's going to have to be reconciled and could certainly delay refunds. Interesting. So it's a whole new challenge this mailing out money in advance of getting folks uh, payments in. Yep, and it's based on your income levels and all sorts of things, right? You could you could get phased out, and so yeah, it just it it definitely complicates things. Glenn, look out to the future of uh, 2022 here. We had a lot of conversations about the tax code in 2021. Given that this is a midterm election year, do you think the tax talk will be on the back burner until we get through the election? You know, that's typically what happens. You know, usually things get passed in, you know, December, say right before Christmas. And I think, you know, most people thought something would get passed in you know, last December and it just didn't. So, um, you know, one thing, though, is some of these, tax law, the tax, the big tax law that was passed in December 2017, certain things start to phase out, start to sunset. Uh, things like R&D expenses, right now, technically, those are now amortizable over five years. There's there's rules around interest expense that these, these laws aren't quite as nice. So if nothing happens in Congress, some of these laws will just naturally sunset and go away. All right. Could be some big changes as 2022 rolls to a close. Glenn Birnbaum, thanks for getting us prepared to meet with our tax preparer this year. And thanks for talking to us. No problem. Appreciate it, Mike. Thanks. And folks, stick around. John Holzman will join us after the break to take a look at the situation between Russia and the Ukraine. Stay with us on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. When you choose the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, you're choosing exceptional weed control. It controls more weeds than any other soybean system and offers up to 14 days of soil activity on certain small-seeded broadleaf weeds. Plus, you get triple tolerance to dicamba, glyphosate, and glufosinate when used with Extend Flex soybeans. The Roundup Ready Extend crop system, the system of choice. Claims are based on approved EPA herbicide labels as of January 2021. Pair with a strong weed management program. Always follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and all other stewardship practices. They say if you listen hard enough, you can hear the corn grow. It's true. When you're out in the field, you understand its challenges and what it needs to thrive. Channel Seedsmen bring insights from the field to our team of Bayer plant breeders. Their knowledge inspires our product development. From your best ground to your most challenging conditions, our products are designed to perform in your fields. Visit ChannelListens.com to see our latest innovations. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. On this morning, we got two new export sales reported from USDA, both for the 21-22 crop year. We sold 8.8 million bushels of soybeans to Mexico, and we sold 126,000 metric tons of sorghum to unknown destinations. However, the soy complex is reflecting good rain chances for Argentina and southern Brazil over the next week to 10 days and is trading down sharply. We also saw good soaking rains in dry areas of Argentina over the weekend. Now, the broader pattern is expected to revert back to dry in the weeks ahead, but these rains will make a difference near term. 
Wheat is trading double digits higher here as it's done that through the overnight into the day session with Chicago and KC leading. The corn market is slightly lower, but we'll call it firm as it's being pulled in both directions, it appears, by soybeans trying to pull it lower and wheat trying to pull the corn market higher. Right now we see March corn down one to three quarters, 594 and a half. July corn down two and a quarter, 591 and a quarter. March soybeans 17 to three quarters lower, 1352. July beans down 18 to three quarters at 1367 and a quarter. March bean meal down 1570 a ton, 389.90. March bean oil up five points at 58.51. March Chicago wheat 19 and a half higher, 761. March KC wheat up 19 and a half, 764 and a half. March spring wheat, Minneapolis up 11 to three quarters at 890. March oats up 23 at 632. Meantime, hogs a little bit higher here in the early go of it. February hogs up 45 at 81.35. April up 27, 88.72. Cattle are a little bit lower. February live cattle down 10, 137.87. April down 25, 141.87. January feeder cattle down 77, 161.92. Crude oil up $1.13 a barrel at 84.95. You're listening to AOA. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here. And I tell you what, we have been talking for the past several weeks about some of the risks being uh, setting up, I guess I should say, across the ocean in the Ukraine. We heard from Josh Linville yesterday. He mentioned that Russia is a massive fertilizer producer and in sort of a shooting war could drastically impact that market. And of course, the wheat market matters as to what's going on in the Black Sea region. I wanted to get an update on the situation in the Ukraine with Russia. To do that, I've invited John Holzman. He's the geopolitical strategist and managing partner at the John at John C. Holzman Enterprises. He's talking to us from Milan, Milan, Italy. I always struggle with that. John, thanks for talking to us today. Pleasure to be here, Mike. We hear a lot about this uh, Russian troop buildup on the Ukrainian border. John, there's all sorts of speculation out there. If you would, let's just start with the facts. What's happening there at the border of the Ukraine? The Russians have put 100,000 troops around the border of Ukraine. In 2014, Russian-backed separatists in the two eastern provinces of Ukraine, which are Russian-speaking, were encouraged by Putin, who sent troops, money, arms into Ukraine. And there's been a very nasty war that's gone on that's killed about 14,000 people since to destabilize the eastern part of Ukraine. But this 100,000 troops around the border is an order of magnitude entirely differently. And the question is, before the ground gets soggy and the tanks can't move, Putin has about six weeks to decide if he's going to invade or not. So frankly, the risk is now. Wow. I didn't realize that the timeline could be that quick. John, as you think about a Russian invasion of the Ukraine, you mentioned the destability, the destabilization that's happened in the eastern provinces. If Russia were to invade, do you see them just taking the eastern provinces or would they march all the way to Kiev? Probably not going to Kiev because it's, Ukraine is a gigantic country and the Russians don't want that headache. 
they would certainly dominate and take over what's left of the eastern part. And they also, in 2014, took over uh, the Crimea, which is the southernmost part on the Black Sea, where Sevastopol is, which is the major port. And they would try to link up what they've already taken in Crimea um, with the eastern provinces with the land bridge, that that would make that contiguous with Russia. Uh, certainly they would do that, and they would fundamentally destabilize Ukraine, ruining any chance it had of being kind of a pro-Western success. Putin would ideally like Ukraine to be his stooge, but that's not going to happen. Second best outcome is Ukraine is a mess. That way it does, it's, Putin can say to the neighbors, siding with the West is a catastrophe. What, what, look what happens. The worst case scenario for Putin is that Ukraine would be successful. It has a long way to go before it gets there, but destabilizing it fundamentally would, would in effect make Russia a wrecking power here. So, John, uh, let's talk about what could happen. There, as you mentioned, there's a million different scenarios that could play out. It's certainly a tinderbox going on there on the border. Thinking back to 2014, after they usurped the Crimean Peninsula, what happened to Russia? What was the international community's response after that event? Well, they, you know, it, it, typically the European Union did almost nothing. They snubbed the Russians at cocktail parties, and the Russians are more than willing to have that happen again. Sanctions were put on some of the leading oligarchs in Russia, but there are all kinds of ways around that. There would be a tougher response this time. Russia would probably be cut out of the SWIFT transfer, which is how money is transferred internationally all over the world. But the Russians could work with the Iranians and the Chinese to get around that. Some of Putin's inner circle would likely be sanctioned. But frankly, not a whole lot of anything would happen. If Putin wants to invade Ukraine, he can't. Ugh. Geographically, the portions of the Ukraine that Putin is eyeing, what would Russia gain? Would we be acquiring some wheat production areas? Is there any fossil fuels that Russia might be trying to secure as well? Or is this really a cultural play to bring those Russian speakers back into the Russian fold? Well, I think primarily, and it's good you mentioned that, Mike, primarily it is cultural. Putin wrote a, a laborious 5,000-word essay. Imagine any leader in the West doing this not long ago about how he said that the greatest tragedy was that Ukrainians and Russians were separated. He did not accept that ethnically they were separate. The Russian-speaking Ukrainians think that they're indeed all part of Mother Russia. And so there's a huge cultural and ethnic reality that's fundamental here. Of course, the more Putin has destabilized Ukraine, the Western parts of Ukraine that historically were part of the Habsburg Empire rather than the Tsarist Empire become more and more Western as in response to this. So the country really is spit splitting along these ethnic lines. But yes, he would indeed get fossil fuels. The area, the Donbass area that, that Putin is, is engaged already in in eastern Ukraine is where the coal comes from, where steel comes from. And with the ports in Crimea, this would give him a fundamental reality. Most of the wheat actually is in the western part of the country. But in a chaotic Ukraine, them getting that wheat to market would become problematic, of course. Absolutely. Wartime is never an ideal time for uh, supply chains and logistics. Uh, John, I, I want to circle back to something you said there. Ukraine is, is currently divided. The western parts being pushed more towards NATO and the west, the eastern part, the Russian speaking, being pulled more towards Russia. If Russia were to invade and, and bifurcate the Ukraine between the, the western and the eastern facing uh, different sides, would that be a net gain for the Ukraine? Would that add some stability or is the encroachment of Russia farther to the West a threat on its own? I think it's a threat on its own. And I, I think it leaves Ukraine in terms of foreign policy nowhere because Ukraine is trying to get into NATO, but it won't. It's far too corrupt. It's, it doesn't meet the standards. And frankly, it's not defensible. The NATO alliance takes in countries that do not have border disputes with their neighbors. It's part of the founding treaty of NATO, the Treaty of Washington. And so as a result, they couldn't get into NATO and they would be at the tender mercy in this kind of no man's land between Russia and Europe, which is frankly where they are now. But Putin has the ability to do this. And frankly, most people think he won't. I think he will because I don't think there's anything to stop him. Putin's now 69. He's looking at his record. He can become president for two more terms. And he has said he wants to solve what he sees as the Ukrainian problem. He never wants Ukraine to join NATO. He doesn't want to be surrounded by Western states that he sees as his enemies. He wants to keep that border, the NATO border, away from him because all of Russian history is about having strategic depth so that you can fight off invasion. And Putin thinks like a Russian czar, which in essence is what he is.
Yeah, and Russian czars aren't terribly shy when it comes to claiming more territory. John, how is the the rest of, I'm going to call it broadly, the West, the European community, the United States, what has been the actual response to the Ukraine? Is there some assistance being promised should Russia make a move? There has been. I mean, there's talk the British today gave Javelin any tank weapons to, to the Ukrainians, which are helpful. Uh, the United States has been engaged in all kinds of non-governmental organization programs in Ukraine to little avail. I've been to Ukraine a good number of times. It, it's a horribly corrupt place. It's incredibly frustrating when you go there because, again, it has, as you mentioned, Mike, all these resources. It's the It used to be the breadbasket of the Soviet Union. It has coal. It has iron ore. It has ports. It ought to make it. But the corruption internally has frankly killed it, and a weak, divided Ukraine is ripe for the plucking for Mr. Putin, who wants to push back on what he sees as the 1990s when he thought Boris Yeltsin ceded all of Eastern Europe and much of the former Soviet territory to the West. So the Europeans are embarrassed about this, but remember, they get most of their oil from Russia, and so they're embarrassed in a rather quiet way. The United States is more forthright about what it would do in terms of sanctions, but nobody's going to go to war for Ukraine. Yeah, well, but would they go to war for natural gas? John, obviously the Ukraine is a crucial shipment point of that Russian natural gas into the European community. What could a war do to impact that price sector? Well, it would, I mean, as you say, on, on supply chains, this would be a problem, but more it's indirect that Russia already with Germany has approved the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which would double Russian gas intake into Europe. The United States was begging under President Trump uh, for a for, this not to happen. Under Biden, he rather quietly said, well, go ahead. I don't want to fight with Germany. This would be in, in, on the line. I do think the new German government uh, of, 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 of Chancellor Schultz would be unlikely to go ahead with Nord Stream 2. And so the Russians, what's holding them back is the notion that they can double their export supply to Europe, making it far more dependent. That's what's going to make Putin hesitate, Was is indeed the politics of natural gas, far more than an army. Uh-huh. Now, how does the, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline work? Would it be coming through the Ukraine? Would it be in the path of a, of a potential Russian assault? No, it would not. It actually, the point of it is it goes around the Ukraine. It goes under the Baltic Sea, cutting out Ukraine so it can't get transit fees, which amount for 4% of Ukraine's GDP. It would cut it out, which is another way Russia says, work directly with us. Don't work through Ukraine. It's, it's to isolate Ukraine. The Germans said, fine, we need the gas. We don't particularly care. The Americans, the French, the British wave their arms. The Germans in a mercantilist fashion ignored all this. Uh, but this pipeline, the Germans have said the new government, they would not go ahead with Nord Stream 2, which is finished. It's taken years and years and years. It's now finished. They would not go ahead and open the pipeline if Russia invades. I think that more than anything is why Putin is hesitating at present. Okay, yeah, that certainly makes sense. Doubling their export capacity of natural gas. And of course, Europe could use that natural gas as prices there have been moving quickly to the upside once again. John, let's talk odds. You mentioned you see Putin making a move. If you had to lay a a figure on it, would you say it's over 50%? Do you think you'll uh, strike? I do. I do. It's about 60. It's not a sure thing, uh, but it's more likely than many of my competitors are saying because Putin can do it. He wants to settle the matter of Russian nationalism. He wants a borderline of states sympathetic to him from Belarus through the Caucasus, through Ukraine, and into even the Balkans, as well as the Middle East, to protect Russia, Mother Russia, from possible invasion and to keep the West farther away. And that's how Putin looks at the world, again, like a Russian czar. I like a Russian czar. And it sounds like the Ukraine would fight in some capacity to repel an invasion, but it could be quite a battle. It could fight, and its army is much better than it was in 2014. It's much better trained, but the Russian army is superior. Superior, and they've got numbers. John Holzman, geopolitical strategist at John C. Holzman Enterprises. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us and fill us in on this huge issue. Enjoy talking, Mike. And folks, stick around when we return. John Newton, chief economist for the Senate Ag GOP uh, Committee, will be joining us. So stick around. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. 
your heart could keep beating, your kidneys could keep filtering, and your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Hey, Dad. Your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad. Your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey. Why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Each and every day, DTN and progressive farmer editors are posting unique, original content to their website at dtnpf.com, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day business decisions. Their award-winning newsroom covers markets, news, and weather, while also providing insights on crops, cattle, equipment technology, and more. You'll find innovative topics like, would you plant soybeans in December? Experiments look at the possibility of boosting yields with early planting. Want to save time? Learn how through autonomous machinery systems. Will there be a surge in feed prices in 2021? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? The editors of DTN and Progressive Farmer are committed to delivering the essential intelligence farmers need every day to help your farm business be more efficient and profitable. Visit DTNPF.com today. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking to Joe Lardy. He's the Market Intelligence and Insights Analyst with CHS Global Research. And today, we're talking about the latest reports from the USDA. Joe, lots of information from the USDA to analyze. What are some of the highlights from the WASDE report? Well, one of the highlights for me was that the numbers were all within reason this time. Normally, uh, in the January WASDE report, we get a big curveball. And we usually spend most of that day and like today trying to figure out what happened with that report. Why did the USDA give us that number? Um, this time around, all the numbers came in relatively where the analysts thought they would come in. Um, as I dig into the numbers a little bit more, uh, we did see uh, reductions in exports to both the wheat and the corn. Um, sadly kind of showing the state of affairs where we have seen demand being a little bit sluggish and uh south america we did see some really big cuts to their production down there um the usda took nine and a half million tons of soybean production out of three countries three and a half million metric tons of corn production out of both brazil and argentina what should people also know about the u.s crop production report and the quarterly grain stocks report the stocks report was usually the section of the report that gave us that big wild card. And we've seen 200, 300 million bushel discrepancies in the past. This time around, that didn't happen. And I think the good thing about that is that we're not wondering about prices in the futures markets and where things should be or what they could be. We kind of know where they are. This is what we expected so we can, you know, trade our fundamental markets again. Thanks for joining us around the table. Learn more about cooperative ownership by visiting cooperativeownership.com. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. 
Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, folks. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. You know, I'm still thinking about what John Holzman said, a 60% chance of a shooting war between the Ukraine and Russia. Boy, there could be some fireworks as this year continues, but there's probably also going to be some fireworks coming out of Washington, D.C. John Newton is the chief economist for the Senate GOP Ag Committee. John, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Let's talk first. What are you working on? What sort of research are you conducting there for the Senate Ag GOP committee? Well, I think we spent the better part of the last year working on the, the Build Back Better legislation and making sure that uh, farmers and rural businesses and small communities didn't see changes to stepped up basis. So uh, we were successful on that front. And, and now, you know, any of the farmers that come in and visit with uh, Senator Bozeman, what's top of mind for them are, are rising input costs, whether it's uh, higher fertilizer costs, farm machinery costs, labor costs. Uh, we're certainly seeing a lot of inflation across the farm economy. Yeah, we certainly are. I think everybody listening would agree with that statement. John, you mentioned the Build Back Better program. We still hear chatterings in D.C. about that uh, that bill coming back in one form or another. Do you think the tax changes are on the shelf for 2022? You know, it's hard to say because if you look at, at the Wharton School of Business or you look at the Congressional Budget Office, they show this package spending uh, close to $4 trillion. So there is the, the possibility that revenue raisers uh, will be needed. But but on the ag side of the equation, the challenge here is this has been completely partisan. Uh, we're spending close to $90 billion in proposed ag, forestry, uh, research, nutrition spending without a single uh, hearing with stakeholders, without talking to farm groups, without any Republican input. That bypassing of regular order is not what the Ag Committee has done for the last 200 years, and that's working in a bipartisan way uh, for farm communities in rural America. You know, the Ag Committee has truly been a bipartisan beacon, at least historically, and certainly, I mean, even if we think back to the, the 2018 Farm Bill, there was bipartisan action there, even if it was a, a, a bit frosty to get things started. John, looking ahead to 2022, of course, we've got midterm elections. We're starting to talk about that Farm Bill again. Have you started conducting some research on uh, on what might happen with this 2023 Farm Bill? Well, we're certainly open for business. We've had stakeholder groups come in and visit with us and visit with the senator to talk about their priorities for this next farm bill. I think it's really important that we listen to farmers and ranchers across the country, listen to rural America, and see what their needs are in advance of this next farm bill. We need to have uh, hearings across the country to get stakeholder input. Uh, and that's something I think my boss looks forward to doing with Chairwoman Stabenow this year. Well, that is good to hear. And John, I want to ask you as well, you know, we were talking briefly there about inflation. I mean, these rising input costs, it seems like agriculture is catching the inflation side on all, on both sides. I should say we're paying higher costs for all of our inputs. And then on the retail side, the American consumer is confronting much higher costs for food goods in the grocery store. As the Ag Committee, how... I guess I should ask, what is the plan to fight inflation? I mean, can the Ag Committee do much at all, or can we just deal with the situation we've got and try to build out from it? Well, one of the main causes of, of the inflationary pressure that we're seeing, whether it's at the retail level or, or on the farm input side, uh, is, is labor markets. We've got 10.5 million jobs open across the economy, 6.3 million Americans that are unemployed. We've got a historically tight uh, labor market. So yes, I think there are uh, opportunities to get people back to work uh, in a safe way and try to deal with some of this inflationary pressure. But the way we do that is by coming together and working in a bipartisan way. And that's not something uh, that our colleagues on the other side of the aisle are interested in doing right now. And John, I mean, I don't want to get too much of the inside baseball, but the the lack of bipartisan action uh, from between Democrats and Republicans, do you see that sticking around all the way to the midterm elections? Well, we certainly hope not. I mean, the, the Ag Committee, like I was to earlier, has a 200-year history of bipartisanship. You mentioned the 18 Farm Bill. Uh, we had record support in the Senate for that Farm Bill. You think about Growing Climate Solutions Act, that's something we did in a bipartisan way. And we had more Republicans vote for Growing Climate Solutions than we did Democrats. So uh, we can work in a bipartisan way, and hopefully 2023, 2022, I'm sorry, uh, in advance of this next Farm Bill is when we start that process. 
You know, you mentioned the growing climate solutions bill there, the move towards towards sustainable, towards climate smart agriculture. John, over this next year, I imagine that's going to be the center of a lot of conversations there in D.C. with you. It, it certainly is. And I think Senator Bozeman has, has communicated many times that, uh, you know, voluntary incentive based tools. There's a role for the private market uh, to, to play here. We need to make sure that's that's what we see uh, moving forward. But what we also don't want to see is is any effort uh, to tie climate practices to crop insurance or eligibility uh, for Title I programs. That's an important uh, thing that the senator has, has said he's, he's not supportive of. Okay. You know, on the uh, on the livestock side, it, Senator Grassley will be on the show on Thursday, folks. Tune in for that. Grassley, Tester, Fisher, and Wyden have this cattle market transparency bill. Have you done any of the research on that bill? Well, what we've done, we, we, we visited with Senator Grassley, Fisher, and Hodsmith, um, late last year, and what Senator Bozeman, you know, told staff, he wants to be an honest broker here, an honest negotiator, and he said, go do your homework. Talk to the leading academics across the country. Uh, tell me what this bill would do to the cattle industry. What are the costs? What are the benefits? Are there any unintended consequences? And, and what's this industry look like five to ten years down the line if we enact this legislation? So that's what we're in the process of doing. Uh, we've already received some reports from uh, Colorado State University, for example, Oklahoma State University. Uh, so, you know, we're going to go through all of that and, and hopefully uh, be able to educate our senators and, and determine a, a best, best path forward. All right. Lots to keep an eye on the radar here for 2022. John, any other big bills you're watching here in the short term? Well, I think, you know, livestock mandatory reporting is something that needs to be reauthorized. It expires February 18th. Uh, so that's something that, that we are working on. It's critically important for the cattle and beef industry to have access uh, to that type of information. So uh, we're working very hard on the Ag Committee, and I appreciate the opportunity to be on with you. Well, thanks for taking the time to join us, John. Always appreciate your insight. That's John Newton, head of the uh, Chief Economist for the Senate GOP Ag Committee. And folks, tune in tomorrow. We'll talk markets with Arlen Suderman. Stay with us on AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm Radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. As a truck driver, I've learned how important road safety is. I know that large trucks need more time and room to stop. That's why I always hang back and follow other vehicles at a safe distance. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. Next time you're driving, try to remember to always give trucks extra space when you merge in front of them. Let's all plan to share the road safely. Learn how at www.sharetheroadsafely.gov.